So I have been away now for, at least according to the calendar, uh, I've been, let's see, six weeks. And it feels like 20 years. I came back to the office today and I felt like I was on the fucking moon. It was absolutely positively the craziest feeling ever because I I just... I just had to like clear a path from mail and boxes and this and that and refamiliarize myself with, oh, what does this button do? And, oh, how do I set this up? And, of course, everything needed an update and everything needed um, a patch and everything needed to be re-signed into. So, yeah, it was, it was a lot. It, it was just a lot, but it's really, really nice to be back here now. Uh, I'm continuing, of course, to con- straighten up. So you'll hear banging, clanging, papers rustling and clicking and clacking the entire time as I get things back to the way they should be. Um, and we, we just have a lot. There's just so much. And I honestly don't know uh, where we left off six weeks ago. So forgive me if we take a couple seconds here and just kind of cover some basics. Um, Twitch changed their terms of service so that I can no longer simultaneously hit Twitch and YouTube. They're trying to like compete more head to head and they don't want cross platforming. So what's going to happen is that, uh, writers chats will be on Twitch and then they will be loaded to YouTube after I'm done. And things like long form lessons and workshops will be on YouTube period. So eventually everything will make it to YouTube. It's just a matter of where they start. So, um, yeah, that's one thing. I'm I'm doing fine. Thank you for asking. It's delightful. Uh, it is the middle of the day. I know that is uh, not. Uh, it's it was the newish time we'd been playing around with. Uh, it's still a work in progress. So uh, maybe I'll be just talking to myself today and that's that's totally fine we can rip through a couple of these questions but for now let's uh let's get started shall we all right just remember what i've taught you So, oh, ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, pantsers, uh, enthusiasts, long-form drivers, longshoremen, truck drivers, tea sippers, uh, phone battery charging enthusiasts, anybody who comes home and wonders why on earth they left themselves such a mess to clean up when they got back. People who did remember to clean out the fridge before they went anywhere. People who 
Uh, remember to stop at the store on their way home so that there's food in the fridge. Anybody who's ever had to wake up after a long night of very deep sleep and realize that it's not actually the weekend and their th whole schedule and their head's been thrown off, and most importantly, the comrades. Hi. This is the Writer's Chat for August the 1st. Wow. And through no fault of my own, I continue to be John, the guy who's going to help you write better. Hi. Uh, yes, brand new graphic, brand new background, brand new label, brand new everything-ish except the sounds and stuff, but at least brand new visuals. Let's, let's start the summer or the back half of the summer with something nice, pretty, and polished. If you have no idea what this is, if this is totally foreign and new to you, uh, this is the Writer's Chat, where I'm going to answer questions from all across social media. I have 13 of them today. I'm going to answer 13 questions. And uh, if there's anybody in chat, I'll be happy to answer your questions as well. Uh, basically, the whole point here is to give you a set of tools to help you write better. And I like doing this. We've been doing this now. I should Somebody asked me if I should number the chats, like go back through and edit all of them. I will count them for next week, and we will have a count on chats, and we will see how far we get, just from the streaming era, because there's, I have three and a half years of audio-only chats where it was just me in a Zoom room with a, with a microphone. I, I have those archived, but uh, I should really start numbering chats, shouldn't I? Do something interesting about it. Maybe I'll start numbering with this one when I post it on YouTube later. So let's get started. Let's just jump in. Uh, the best way to do an awkward thing is just to start and we'll go from there. So ready for the first question? Here we go. Question number one, do you think publishers will use AI to evaluate submissions? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, I think they will use it and I think they have been using it. I think a lot of consultants and book-adjacent people will happily profit off of suggesting AI come in to do what is normally a very human-centric task because you can train a large language learning model. You can train machine learning to look for specific things. You can have it look for phrases. You can have it read for sort of context clues and at least pick up on the basics in terms of a file size and a file's general construction, as long as it ticks a few magic words that get flagged. But you'll lose that human element. You'll lose that human interest idea of like a person writing to another person connects emotionally. But I think a lot of publishers don't give a shit about that. I think a lot of publishers could not be fucking bothered because in order to you know go for that human connection, you have to employ humans, which means you have to spend money. And publishers are not in the business of spending money. They're in the business of making money. So anything they can do to reduce their uh, payroll cost or reduce any of their costs while expediting things and reinforcing the sort of that gatekeeper nonsense of, hey, look, this is how you have to be. You have to be this tall to ride the ride. You have to be this kind of hoop jumper to get published traditionally. Like, I think it's set up to further entrench the gatekeeping strategy. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not even remotely shocked at this question. I think it's just a matter of time before it becomes more ubiquitous. And honestly, if you as a writer are wondering what you can do in the face of this, do not submit traditionally. Go find other avenues for publishing because AI is here and people are going to absolutely just screw around with it 
misunderstand it, misappropriate it, and use it in all different kinds of ways in late-stage capitalism to herald a new era of just collapse, frustration, and mediocrity. Nothing good comes from this. Nothing good's gonna come from this. So, of course, they're gonna do it. On we go to the next question. Question number two. Why are advances so low, and why are they handled the way they are? Well, we sort of answered part of this question with the first question. Why are advances so low? Publishers don't want to spend money. Publishers want to make money. Why are they handled the way they are? Okay, we have to do a little bit of a history lesson here. So the, the way they're handled is this. You will sign a contract for a book, a number of books, whatever, and there will be a, an, an advance, an amount of money given to you. And that could range anywhere from a few hundred to several thousand dollars. And typically, that advance is not given to you all in one lump sum. It's given to you in pieces, and it's given to you in pieces because of certain milestones. You'll get some the day you sign. You'll get some the day they finalize the manuscript. You get some the day uh, your book gets printed. You get some the day your book goes out for a wide release. Things like that. You have publishing little checkpoints, and on those checkpoints, you get a portion of your advance. So whatever lump sum money the contract has in it gets divided up into any number of pieces of whatever number of size. Now, way this is they've been doing this for over a century at this point. And the reason why they do it that way is because way back when there was money and people were less concerned with hoarding money, uh, you could live comfortably on an advance. You could, you know, travel and have a house and put your kids through school just on the strength of your advances. And, and they'd be spaced out enough and move fast enough uh, thanks to things like patriarchy and white privilege and sexism and racism and a number of other factors so that the average writer could scratch out a nice, decent living with a big enough advance, well-budgeted, where the space between the pieces was small, but the amount of money was reasonable relative to the cost of living. Nobody was really struggling. Publishers realized that uh, that's really expensive. We got to keep handing out these big chunks of money pretty regularly for writers. Uh, that makes it hard for us, the publishers, to hold on to the money if we keep giving it out. So what we need to do is stop giving so much of it out. And they started reducing the size of advances. They, they made a couple... Um, piddly gestures and reasons as to why they said things like, well, the quality of books has declined or with the changes in the publishing landscape, like when uh, Kindles came out and digital reading and digital publishing came out even before then, they talked about how the landscape has changed. So the old fashioned, that's what their word was, advanced model no longer really applies. It's not that big a deal, though it is a big deal. But to, other, to them, they don't think of it as a big deal because they don't have to try and live on, you know, $2,200 for six months until the next check comes. And they, they don't give a shit. They're not going to give a shit. They're not going to suddenly spontaneously care. But advances are low because nobody wants to spend money. They're handled the way they are because they're built on a system that worked better when there was money. Advances are one of the big thing that everybody like holds up as this banner, like, aha, I've made it, I'm published, I have this advance. And what they fail to realize that it's the, uh, it's the food pellet you give the hamster that's stuck on the wheel 
to keep them running. It's the little bit of encouragement. It's a little bit of like, oh, hey, keep moving. Keep running the treadmill. Keep navigating this, uh, this, this maze, you rat. Here's a little bit of cheese. Keep going. Uh, there's bigger stuff on the horizon, and there's never bigger stuff on the horizon. That's, that's the whole thing. It's designed to keep you down. It's designed to hold you back, and no one questions it. Because there's nothing stopping a publisher from giving you $10,000 up front, $10,000 the day they finalize your book, and ten dollars to $20,000 a day your book publishes. There's nothing stopping them other than active disinterest. Why not? Think about what $10,000 could do. Think about what $20,000 could do. Why not? The money didn't go anywhere. They just don't want to give it to you. So that's why the advances are set up the way they are. And they look for reasons to spread them out. Oh, well, we'll give you a chunk of that advance when we finalize the book. Then all of a sudden you find that there's more and more weeks and more and more waitings and more and more email silence when it comes to finalizing the book. Be careful. Be really careful in traditional publishing waters because the house is very much rigged against you and they've handed you loaded dice. Good question, though. Thanks for asking. Question three. What do I think the next genre to be made cozy will be? We talked about this a little ways back about what cozy horror is. And we talked about cozy romance and cozy mystery. Cozy, if you don't know, cozy is just the idea that there's much lower stakes, much simpler story construction, generally just a, a lighter, I'm making air quotes, lighter caliber of read. They're a popcorn book, a disposable thing. Read and forget. Chuck behind you when you're done. Leave it behind on a shelf at, a, at a, the place you're staying for the summer. Read it on the airplane. No, Generally, no great lasting import. They can still be good stories. Absolutely, they can be good stories, and they can be well-written. But, like, it's, it's, not, it's not tremendous epic stuff. Cozy horror, is it like Scooby-Doo, Ross? Um, yeah. I guess you could call, I mean, that's more on the comedic side, but yeah, you could scale cozy horror like Scooby-Doo. Cozy horror is more like itty-bitty jump scares or just one not terribly gory monster kind of a thing. What do I think the next genre that's cozy? Well, we've got mystery and we've got romance and now we have horror. I honestly think your next cozy is probably going to be women's fiction. Or um, like new adult science fiction. I think we're going to cozy or try to create cozies in areas where we can't otherwise normally define the story. Like new adult, like women's fiction, that kind of thing. Where the definition and the exactitude is really nebulous. Like, well, I know it when I see it, but I can't really tell you what to like put in your thing to make it that way because publishers don't want to get definitive. That way they can always say yes or no accordingly. So I think you're going to see Cozy sort of invade those spaces and act as kind of an umbrella or a safety net for stories that are okay, but because they're not pushing larger emotional agendas, because they don't have something to say, because they don't push a big theme or anything, I think you're going to see Cozy as like the... the 
the protective element, the prophylactic element, where it's like, well, yeah, I'm writing new adult, but don't worry, it's cozy. And all of a sudden, cozy new adult sounds trendy, which means people will flock to it. So I think cozy will probably move to women's fiction and then new adult, just general fiction thereafter. Uh, I think cozy will... Honestly, I think cozy will take a while before it gets to, like, science fiction. Um, mainly because science fiction writers are really uh, aggressive. I think that's the, the politest word for it. Aggressive in their defense of who and what's going on. They, they really want to, like, hold the line, stand strong against uh, the invaders, whomever they might be. So I think it'll take a while for science fiction to get cozy, but... I'd look for it in women's fiction next. Do I think it's a bad thing? No, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think um, I think it's a thing. I think it's a choice. I think it's an idea. I'm not a fan, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. It just means I don't go out of my way to read that stuff. And I do wish that a lot of cozy writers would put down some of the shields and some of the crutches they have in and around the concept of cozy and really push themselves and really try not to just write the safe way and try to really say something, try to really go out on a big limb and push themselves as writers. I think a lot of them are very, very capable of it. And I, it's, it bothers me more that they don't push themselves more than the thing they write exists. Anything can exist. Go ahead. Fill, fill the shelves with tons of stuff. Just um, it, it should matter more. That's all. Do I think a show like Stargate is cozy sci-fi? What a great question that is. Yeah, to a degree. Um, I think the TV show more than the movie. I think the TV show, as it got more episodic, as it got, it, it rounded off some of those rough edges and it just became about, let's go in a portal and, you know, wear period costumes for 43 minutes, then jump back in the portal. And the, the dangers are kind of expected. Oh, the portal's not working. Oh, there's a bad guy. I think, um, I think cozy is just sort of the bubble wrap to put around things where we don't have to push too hard for stakes. We don't have to push too hard for drama. It's there, but it's, it's muted. So yeah, I, I guess the T the, especially the later series of Stargates, because I, I know that there's more than one Stargate on TV. Uh, I think those later shows got much cozier um, you also saw it with some of the later like electric company stuff like uh, the librarians, the last season of leverage, stuff like that where very clearly the tone in the writing changed and it no longer became like, I want to say edgy, but edgy might be too hard a word where it definitely got softer and a little bit goofier, a little sillier, a little bit more like broadly accessible. I think that's where things start getting cozy at least in, in visual media. The rules for cozy and fiction are just lower stakes, primarily. But yeah, I, I think Stargate, the later TV shows, would qualify as cozy sci-fi, but most, most people, I think, kind of forgot about the last one or two Stargate spinoffs. Um, I, I have vague snapshot recollections of commercials on the sci-fi channel for them, but beyond that, I don't think... Um, I don't think Cozy's really like dunked into sci-fi the way it has for mystery or romance. Good question, though. Since there are people in chat. Hi, Chad. It's good to see you guys again. Um, 
Any questions about anything? It's totally okay if you don't. We will just keep on moving. Um, uh, the tea today, I'm so glad you asked. The tea today is uh, Chinese green tea. Uh, I got, the, where did I get this? I got this from Sam's Club. I want to say this is just simple green tea from Sam's Club. It's not bad. I needed tea. Um, I, I'm... I'm in the office today, but I'm not in the office for a lot of the rest of the week. So I'm just going through pantry supplies today while I'm sitting here. Uh, it's not bad. It's minty. It's keeping me moving. Um, I'm satisfied with it. I haven't written in. Oh, so here's a good question. I haven't written in about three weeks. What's the best way to get back on the horse and find the fun in riding again? All right. Well, mouthful of tea first. Then I'll answer your question. I haven't written in about three weeks. Okay, that's fair. No problem. The best way to get back on the horse and find the fun in writing. I'll tell you this. Why are you writing? Putting aside, I have a contract. Putting aside, I have other people counting on me. Putting aside the external pressures, right? We know they're there. We know those are things. But they're going to be there no matter what. So for the moment, we just have to deal with them the same way we deal with the weather or a need to wear pants or existential, larger, external things. They're just there. But that doesn't necessarily address or, or at all or completely why you do a thing. Like, you could not write next week and take the streak to four weeks. Why do you write? If your answer is something like, I enjoy writing, I like writing, that's fine, but it, now it's time to push in a little bit. Now it's time to dig in a little bit deeper. Because it's not just enough to be all, well, I like writing. Because there's loads of stuff I like that I haven't done in, in a couple of weeks. I like playing uh, a variety of Zelda games. I like trying to make, you know, odds and ends musical stuff for different chats and videos and stuff. I like doing that stuff. I haven't done it in a while. But liking a thing isn't enough. And... While that is something we can shorthand and tell ourselves, we need to push in. We need to dig in a little bit more. So why do you write? Do you write because you want to create something and you want to see it in the world? Do you write because you have this picture in your brain and if you don't get it out, then like your brain's going to leak out of your ears? Do you write because you are driven to be a storyteller? Instead of... Instead of viewing things in terms of fun, not fun, which is a fairly limited element because eventually it's going to get not fun when you get to writing something hard and then you're not going to want to do it anymore. Instead of thinking about it in terms of, well, I can only write when it's fun, write instead because of that reason most central and core to you. I write because I dot, 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 fill in the blank. Find that reason verbalize it, express it to yourself. It doesn't really matter if you tell other people. It's, it's for you and you alone. So what is it that gets you creating and telling stories? Not when you feel most inspired, not when, you know, the planets align or this shit happens or that thing happens. Why do you do what you do? What gets you coming back to it? Because if it wasn't a big deal at all, it wouldn't matter how many weeks you didn't, right? Because you wouldn't be asking the question in the first place. Look instead for the why you write. 
and then understand that that why, whatever it is, isn't going anywhere unless you decide to ignore it. It doesn't matter how long ago you wrote last. It doesn't matter how late or behind whatever curve you are. None of that shit matters. There is a reason you write. And sometimes writing is not fun, but sometimes writing has to happen. Either because of those external things, like I got to wear pants or there's somebody counting on me. But there also has to be that internal motivator of, I write because I have an, a, a need and an urge and a drive to tell this story. Because I have to get this story into the world because I believe in it and I believe in myself. Whatever that Whatever that why is, it's never going anywhere. So the best way to get back on the horse and, and do it is to sit down and be honest about your why and then realize that sometimes you just want to tell good stories and make art. Then who cares if it's fun or not? Sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes art is difficult. Sometimes good stories take time, and that means you got to put in the effort. And if you are open to things, if you are open to the world, if you're open to more than just the funness of it, and you're open to the discipline of, I got to sit here and do this, and I'm open to the experiences of the last three weeks and the worries I have and the, and the excitement I have and the anxiety and this and that, and, you, and you're able to filter and pass and lens all these different things in and out, it will affect and shape the art. And because you have a, you know, if I don't do this, my brain's licking out of my face kind of things, then let all those different things permeate and infuse what it is you're making. Sit down, get real clear on the why you're doing it. Realize that the hard thing that's making it difficult is the momentum you feel in not doing it. The inertia needs to be gained. But once you get back to writing, it will be fun again because you will be you know, doing a thing you like doing and preventing brain leaking. The reason most people stall and the reason why people struggle to come back is not because the story is suddenly bad or because, you know, like they, they forgot their password to Microsoft Office or something. They, they feel like I took this time off, however much time, and now I ha there's like this hump, this obstacle I have to like overcome and, and I've got to get all my momentum back and I'm a bad person because I lost that momentum. You're not a bad person for losing momentum. It doesn't matter if you took three weeks, three months, three years, three lifetimes. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you have your reason why you write and then you go back to it. And sometimes that means you sit down and do it when it's not fun, but it will become fun, if that makes sense. Like, it's hard. Writing sucks. It's tough sometimes, but it's also fun sometimes. But you still have to do it because you're driven to do it. It's discipline, it's focus, it's effort, it's care. If you want to tell those good stories and make art, you are going to end up doing it on days where you don't want to. And I think for a lot of writers, that is a proving ground, a crucible, a breaking point. Because I think a lot of writers look at it only in terms of, I do this and it's fun and I only do it when it's fun. And they never really seem to get anywhere. And they never really seem to have their effort match their ambition. But if you're looking to bring those two things closer together or have, you know, effort exceed ambition, do more than you ever thought you could, push yourself to an even higher level than you ever thought possible, then you're going to have to show the fuck up for yourself. You're going to have to sit there and, and do it for you 
no matter whether it's fun or not, the best way to get back on the horse is to sit down and put your fingers on the keys and just write. Not like, oh my God, I left hang, I left dangling on chapter four. I have to go right back to chapter four. Take two pages and babble your way through a bullshit scene. Get the muscles going again. Then go back to chapter four or wherever it is you left off. But art, art will demand your attention no matter your interest because creating art is a fully consuming process. It absorbs and demands and requires all of you. So respect yourself and show up for yourself and give a shit about yourself and just go back to work. Not that it has to be perfect right away, but not that it's been three weeks and you have to make up, I'm making air quotes, make up for the lost time. It's that you want to do this and nothing's going to stop you. I would focus on that. That's how I would get back to it. Because that's the exact same pep talk I gave myself this morning. Great question. Love your question. Good stuff. Shall we move on? Shall we march forward? You're very welcome. Question four. If every sentence is a camera, how do I handle things that would be visual edits? Oh, good question. Love this question. Okay. So we know what a visual edit is, right? That's where like the TV show you're watching suddenly cuts to a different camera angle or we jump away to somebody totally, we were looking at one scene and then all of a sudden we're looking at a different scene, you know, jump cuts, match cuts, all that stuff. How would you handle that in prose? Well, sometimes depending on what it is we're editing and how we're pairing these two things up, we're just going to hit enter. We're going to hit return. We're going to leave a white space on the page. A hard carriage return if you want to be, you know, fussy about it. When the jump is dynamic enough, meaning we're going to go follow Ross and then we're going to jump and cut to John, maybe we use a dinkus. That's a centered asterisk or a centered dot or a centered plus or a centered single symbol on its own line dividing two paragraphs. Maybe uh, it's not a page. Don't use a page break and it's not a line. It's a single character with space all the way around it. Um, totally fine. If we are looking to cut in a more of a, a match way, like we are talking about, you know, we, we visualize a car driving up and then we want to visualize a different car driving up. Well, then we make sure that the sentences uh, are spaced apart, meaning we're going to have hit enter after a paragraph and break it up. And that each of our sentences, or each of our paragraphs rather, start with a sentence that contains the same idea. So if we have, you know, in the heist movie, if we have car number one carrying two people and car number two carrying two people, then we have a paragraph where the car number one pulls up and we talk about how the car pulls up and the way the tire crunches on the gravel, et cetera, et cetera. And then we have an exact same sentence starting the second paragraph that we've cut into for car number two. It's small visual elements, but it's going to be visual on the page. So it's how we orient white space and do we repeat words and concepts to give us a sense of similarity between the, the, the mental imaginative picture we're painting. Beyond that, mostly it's going to be word choice because you get to control what the reader imagines from one thing to the next. Is that the... The octograph that, yes, that is the octograph that Scrivener separates scenes into. Yes, the hashtag. 
the octograph, the number sign, the symbol. Yep, it's uh, Dinkus. It's a divider. They're all the same term. Dinkus is the publishing printing term. Also, it's a goofy word. But yeah, that's the that's the separation symbol. That tea is good. Minty as hell. It's on the border between toothpaste minty and decently minty. So if I just drink it fast enough, it won't be a problem. Beyond, I'm, I'm sure, just to come back to the visual edits part, I'm absolutely sure there are things I'm not thinking of. There's a million bajillion different ways to visually edit, and most of them are going to be handled on the page just by how you orient the text, and a lot can be uh, handled based on what that text is. But I'm sure somebody somewhere is screaming into their headphones as they listen to this podcast version or they're watching the video on YouTube after this goes up. They're yelling a million different things or they're leaving comments down below in the YouTube comments uh, as to things I've missed or forgotten. So, yeah, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you more things. But also some of this is also situational. Like, I don't know what two things you're writing. It's not one size fits all. So it depends on what you're writing and how you're writing it. Most of the time, though, your job is to put a movie in the reader's brain. So as long as you can handle that and control each camera and control each sentence to put those images in, the edits will more or less handle themselves unless you really, really jarringly like yank the reader around. But it, you'll figure it out. Trust yourself to draft. Trust yourself. On we go. Question number five. I got this question last week. In a, in a meeting. How do I even figure out what the pacing is in my story? Because we always talk about pacing, right? People worry, oh my God, what about my pacing? What about my pacing? Is, am I going too fast? Is my pacing too slow? Is my pacing off? And you'll get bullshit feedback from people on social media about, oh, well, the reason I rejected this story was because of the pacing. Pacing, just so we're clear, just so we can define some terms, pacing is the consistency or the meter at which events and time pass in the story. When I say time, I don't mean like every day something happens in a story is the same length because we can, you know, just wipe a day away with a hand wave. Nothing happened for two days. Well, all of a sudden we've jumped forward in time. Pacing is how long we spend on a thing in our story and how long each thing, whatever it is, is relative to other things so if you've got a mystery let's say and we're looking for clues some clues are less important than other clues because that's how clues work so the clues that are important and unimportant because we don't want the reader to immediately figure everything out spending time with clues is roughly the same size Action beats are more or less the same size, but as we get deeper into the story and the stakes mount and things become more dangerous, maybe we spend more time with it. Controlling how long we go with each thing in our story talks about how important that thing is supposed to be for the reader. So if you have a scene where two characters are talking and they're talking and talking and talking and talking, and it goes on for many, many pages, even if there's other stuff happening in between all the lines of dialogue. But let's say you've got multiple chapters where it's just these two people yapping before we even move forward down the plot chain. If you've just got characters talking and you're taking up so much time and space, the reader's going to look at this and go, 
wow, we've been reading this conversation for 5, 10, 15 pages. This must be really important shit, whatever it is. So if you have really dull-ass conversation, as so many stories often bloat themselves with, and you're spending 10, 15 pages on it, you're, you're just eating time. It's, it's filler. It's chuffa. It's, it doesn't need to be there. And you've slowed your pacing down because we've just taken up so much time, taken up so many words, taken up so much space on what is functionally unimportant. And then it just takes forever to get to the next thing, whatever it might be. When I say something like that, somebody out there has one of two very distinct reactions. One, they freak the fuck out about everything. And they make all their story stuff uniform. All my scenes need to be roughly this many words or this many pages. Doesn't matter what kind of scene it is, it's going to be this size. And they try to smush all the, the variation of their story out and create this uniform boxy. There's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. Everything is 5,000 words. Everything is this many pages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No matter what, they freak out. Or two, and, and this might actually be my, of the two, my least favorite choice. They drag everything out because it's all supposed to be important. And then when they get to the end, they mash down the accelerator. And all of a sudden, after this really slow story where it just... Everything feels like we've been told this whole fucking story by an ant. All of a sudden, we get to the ending, and then it's over in like two seconds. The rubber band snaps back, and we are rocketed past the you know post-climax because it's over now. Okay, bye-bye. Hate it. Hate it. Here are the rules for pacing. Here are some basics to pay attention to for whatever you're drafting, however deep you are into it, no matter the genre. If a story element, maybe that's a scene, maybe that's a chapter, maybe that's an event, it's a thing in the story. If a thing is important in the story, make sure there are enough words in and around that thing to make it clear to the reader that it's important. That doesn't mean that you have to, have to, have to spend like 20,000 words to belabor some point. It just means that if you have a thing, if you have X and X is supposed to be important, make sure the words around X indicate it's important and then move on. Your pacing will naturally sort itself out over time as you draft and as you write. Yes, some scenes are going to end up slower than other scenes when you don't mean them to. The fix for that is revision, editing, trimming, getting a coaching session. This is not a situation where we have a singular formula that we apply to everything. This is not a math class. This is a more dynamic, artsy kind of thing. If you're going to spend a certain amount of importance on a thing, put good words to it. Trust yourself. Trust yourself. This is huge. 
that you've watched enough TV, you've played enough games, you've seen enough shows, you've read enough books, that you have an inherent sense of how long or how slow or how fast or how big a story should be and how it should move from one thing to the next. You've got to trust that experience you're bringing into writing. Now, granted, if you're watching this for some fucking reason and you're like nine, first of all, I love your parents for letting you just absorb whatever material you want. That's rad as hell. And two, understand the very simple principle of when you're done talking about a thing, move to the next thing. That's going to fix the majority of your pacing problems. You figure out your pacing by looking not at the technical side of it, but by figuring out, okay, why, why is this scene taking so long? Did I do the important thing or do I need to move forward? That's how you figure out your pacing. Also, something to be said for the fact that most people can't figure out their pacing on their own because they're too close to it. They assume everything is, is a disaster more often than they assume everything is fine. That's why you ask for help. Just get some help. If you go to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com, you can get help for free. That's johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com. But there's my shameless plug for this hour of the afternoon. Hooray! On we go to the next question. Question number six. What are two things I should probably be spending more time thinking about with my romance novel? Ooh, spicy. So... Two things you should be thinking about. One, what kind of theme beyond romance are you putting in this story? Because it's a romance novel. Somebody's fallen in love with somebody else. Gender doesn't really matter here. Identity doesn't really matter here because those things are real fluid. They're spectrum, so it could be whatever. But when we take the romance and we put it off to one side, and it's, it's there, but we're not dealing with it right now. What else is your story about? What are your themes beyond romance? Because romance is going to be one of them. But what else are you trying to say? Not that you need to, like, bludgeon your reader with a history lesson or something, or go out of your way to, like, set up an atmosphere, like, here's what, you know... A typical day in the 1700s was like you, you don't need to do that that's not really a theme i mean what else are you trying to get across your story is about developing a romance cool what else is it about uh believing in yourself standing up to a bully uh found family uh persevering over unusual odds understanding that you were stronger than you first thought um the uh deleterious effects of capitalism what is your theme outside of romance? That would be item number one. Put a big gold star next to that. Item number two. Oh, let's see. Item number two. Are you taking too long in your romance? Like in the progression of your romance, are you starting off real slow and then all of a sudden like hyper accelerating? You know, like we took many, many scenes and many, many interactions between our romantic peoples before they had their first physical romantic encounter. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, like they went from like 
furtive glances and maybe kind of sort of are they into me and oh my god i think they're cute and oh my god are they really into me and ooh, they looked at me today what do i think oh oh my god we're holding hands holy shit we're holding hands too hey you want to go have like this massive group sex orgy for two chapters how are you organizing the romantic relationship of your story is it reasonable it's okay if things accelerate very quickly, like, oh my God, I held your hand and tomorrow we're going to make out. Yeah, that's a thing that happens. People hook up all the time. Great, delightful. But if you spent all this time in space demonstrating to the reader that this is a slow burn and we're trying to get this sense across of like, will they, won't they, will they, won't they? And then all of a sudden the will they turns into, what do you mean there's an elephant and 33 people in the room? Well, that's, that's a bit big. We, we've suddenly added way too much stuff. Be careful with how you dispense or, or portion the physicality in your romance novel. There are way too many romance novels that spend a lot of time and place in like this weird space where it's like the usually female in a hetero romance novel, usually the, the female lead protag is sitting there like, Oh my God, I, I don't know what I, I like this person, but I, I just can't seem to like express myself to them. But then like they have this flashback or something to a scene where they were totally like having an aggressive sex scene. And, and now they're over here trying to justify their feelings for the new hunky guy in the book. And the mismatch between like sexual aggression and sexual pursuit versus, oh my God, my feelings. It's really jarring. You don't want to fall into this yo-yoing trap where we're snapping the reader back and forth from, well, is the reader, is the character conflicted about how they feel or is everybody just looking for like a new way to bend their legs and stretch their hamstrings because it's go time. Romance novels probably deserve a whole other additional workshop if you're looking for a good romance novel workshop go check out the youtube channel there's a whole nice one on there we should totally do more like 60 percent of my business is romance novels i kind of sort of know what i'm talking about it's worth your time investing and checking them out on we go to the next question are there any questions from anybody in chat If not, we shall march proudly on. What is developed tonality? I wrote it down during a previous writer's chat, but have nothing else beside it. Developed, okay, so let's talk about tonality and then we'll talk about developed tonality. What an awesome question. Tonality is how you sound. Tonality is the way you express yourself. That's tonality. It, it just is. When we make an effort to shape our tonality, like we're going to try to sound more serious, you as a writer are trying to sound more serious. Let's say you're going to write um, a very different genre than you normally write, or you're going to write in a style that requires a bit more effort and thinking and construction on your part. You are changing the way you normally communicate. You are trying to do, like if you write in first person all the time, 
and then all of a sudden we want to go to third person or vice versa. Or if you're trying to, you know, you're a pretty casual person and all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to begin blogging and, you know, coming across as a professional. When you shift your tone in a constructed, manufactured way, you've developed your tonality. Prior to that, it was just tonality. It's just how you sound. But when all of a sudden you attempt to do something where you've sounded like you've tucked your shirt in or gone the other way and untucked your shirt and just been like, previously I sounded like this, but now, man, I just sound like that. Whenever you shift from your just default tone to something else, you have developed your tonality. I haven't talked to that. That's a while ago. That was several writers chats back. Good question. The value in doing that, if you're asking the value, is that sometimes, depending on your audience, depending on your style, depending on your book, it may help you to construct your story, even in part, in a developed tonality. Like if you're doing uh, an alternating point of view story, maybe it's a romance novel, maybe it's an action story or whatever, and we're jumping back and forth between two characters, if one character sounds like you because it's just you, and the other character sounds very formal because they're the the third lance corporal of the division or whatever, then they've tucked their shirt in and they're saluting everybody. So they're going to have a very developed tonality. Whereas like you, the regular civilian are just going to be like, Oh shit, the robot apocalypse and go from there. Make sense. It's a great question. Really awesome question. Love that. Oh, man. Shall we move on? It's a good one. Question number seven. What are two things I should probably be spending more time thinking about with my fantasy novel? So, same as the last question, only now we're going to talk fantasy. Oh, boy. Here we go. So, um, I'm going to give you different ones than I gave the romance people. So, for your fantasy novel, this one's going to be pretty general. Is your plot dull? Is your plot dull? Do we just have characters walking from point A to point B doing shit? Is the quest too straightforward? Are your characters... Well, we'll deal with that one in a second. But are you, is your story too linear? Because if it is, and it's fine that it is, but my question and my challenge to you would be, hey, if it's so linear, why is this thing 130,000 words? What, what is it that justifies it being 130,000 words and not like 80,000 words? Other than the fact that you just really, really love to write funny scenes. Like, is your story too linear? Could we mix it up a little bit? Could we vary the, the, the structure of our story to give our narrative some more oomph? That's item number one. Item number two. Are your characters really, really one-dimensional and almost always overpowered? So what happens in a fantasy novel is you get a couple different very well-tired, beaten-half-to-death cliches, and one of them is there's a new guy and a very experienced other guy who's been there and done that, and the new guy rubs off on the old guy to give him an appreciation of, of like, you know... He sees things through new eyes and that warms the cold heart of the tired guy. 
and then usually the tired guy dies and the new guy is left bereft or something or uh, everybody is just at peak maximum skill the wizard never fucks up the thief is like the greatest thief ever or they're like hyper snarky comic relief or um, like the priest is maximum holy and never tested. Everybody's always operating as much as possible at 100% effectiveness. That's really boring. That's grotesquely dull. It's, it's, I understand that this is a fantasy novel and you're trying to be engaging because you want people, people to pay attention that, oh my God, they're fighting a six-headed minotaur. Cool. But it's more interesting if people aren't perfect. I don't care if they're made up people. I don't care if this stubbled ranger with a troubled backstory is really the forgotten son of a long lost kingdom. Oh God. Don't care. What I do care about is why, why can't this guy miss? What would happen if the wizard, you know, sneezed? What if the priest who's supposed to be communing with their deity for daily power suddenly looks at the world and notices that uh, there's inequality in a world where the, the deity keeps telling everybody that they're equal. What would that do? Variation and a lack of perfection make for a more interesting story. Combine that with a variation in plot structure so that we're not just walking from the Shire to Mordor and back and we filed off all the serial numbers or we've not just unlocked the four sacred magic happy houses and collected the four happy meal toys. And then we have a super weapon as long as we've kept it very, you know, varied. And as long as we've added things like, Hey, we're, we're taking a detour over here or, Hey, you know, we've put these characters in a relationship. We've done something different and new, not enough stories, not enough writers take enough risks that way. Fantasy demands it because otherwise everybody's story after a while just starts really looking the same with just a different coat of paint oh you're western okay so you're british european fantasy oh this is you know samurai okay oh this is you know sort of weird renaissance gunslingers you must watch critical role okay oh this is you know a little bit goofy. This is something else. Oh, this is dark and brooding. After a while, all we're doing is slapping a different color paint on the same 10 ideas. Variation, 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 not at a cosmetic level, but at a story architecture level is going to do a lot better for you writing wise, publication wise, readership wise than just being one more person writing one more story with one more ranger who's got one more set of stubble and abs variation 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 great question question eight threads or blue sky or is it blue ski i'm gonna call it blue sky threads or blue sky as a writer hello american question asker because um Outside of the U.S., Threads is a no-go. The EU has massively banned Threads on a number of reasons. I think privacy and, and GDPR requirements is the biggie. It's possible that there are others. But, um, yeah, it's, it's not everywhere. 
it, it's it's nice that you've assumed that how things are for you is how things are for everybody else, but uh, no. So Threads goes off the board because it's not truly universal, which leaves Blue Sky, um, which is fine. But Blue Sky is new. You still need the invite code. You still need to juggle a few things. I'm on Blue Sky. It's in the upper corner over there. Um, I like it. A lot of furries, a lot of dicks. Um, but good other, like like if you're willing to navigate in and around some uncomfortable, like, oh, my God, I wasn't expecting that kind of material. Um, it's fine. But in terms of you being a writer and being on it, my question is going to be, why are you on it? Are you on it because everybody else is? Are you on it because you're looking for butts? Are we looking to have different conversations with different brands? Because that's all threads is. Threads is 10 million what used to be sponsored tweets talking to each other. You can observe Oreos talking to Wendy's, talking to Cinema Blend or whatever. Like It's weird and surreal. But why are you on these platforms? What are you trying to do? If your answer is, I'm just trying to sell my book, um, go sell your book in person somewhere. It's, that's too generic an answer. Why are you on these platforms? What is it you are looking for? What is it you are trying to do? Mouthful of water. Because now we're going to get fired up. Don't just get on a damn platform because you think everybody else is on the platform. And don't just use that platform to litter it with the detritus of your sales links because that's the same shit that polluted and clogged every other platform. And then we move on like locusts from one thing to the new hot thing and somehow you make it work. Why are you on this platform? What are you going to do here on this platform that you didn't think you did well enough on the old platform? That's the reason to stay on the platform. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm using it to see what other people are doing and see how they're doing it. But I'm also seeing like whole other communities that I never, ever dreamed of interacting with. And while I'm not sitting there constantly pitching like, hey, do you need help? Hey, 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 are you writing a book? Are you writing a book? Are you writing a book? The way I did when Twitter was good. Um it's still an opportunity. It's still a chance. It's still a thing for you to do better for you to evolve from platform to platform because decentralization, the idea that we have to be on like 11 different platforms and scratch out small meager livings, one place or the other, that's, that is still unfortunately kind of the name of the game, but why are you on the platform and what are you doing with it? Because just pick one. Just pick one. Just pick one. If you listen to the podcast from a couple weeks back, I recommended that every writer, no matter who they are, no matter what they're writing, just needs two platforms. Just pick two. Any two. I don't give a shit which two. Just pick two. And get good at them. Get comfortable with them. Develop from them. And that'll be enough to leverage to go to a third platform. And then past that, anything else is gravy. We don't need to be in 11 places. It's not, it's not generally good for our mental health to be spread out so thin over 11 places, constantly monitoring each one, and then, oh, by the way, finding time to write. If you like threads, go ahead, enjoy threads. If you like blue sky, go ahead, enjoy blue sky. 
pick one and do something with it. Use it for something more than just, here's my sales link. Sign up for my newsletter. Here's my sales link. Oh, here's a giveaway. Put down the horseshit nonsense. What kind of things would your main character be doing today? Childish games. And instead focus on, hi, I'm a person making a book. Who are you? What are you into? What's got your life moving the way it moves? That's really interesting. Here's what moves my life the way it moves. How can we help each other? Not just how can we exchange monies for different things, but how can we genuinely build a connection between the two of us? You could do that. I know it's weird. I know it's odd. I know it's a little bit freakish because we're supposed to be on these platforms to sell our books, to sell our books, to slap our marketing shit all over the place. I'm telling you to do different. Doesn't matter to me if you go threads. Doesn't matter to me if you go blue sky. If you're on blue sky, come say hello. You're on threads. I think I'm on threads. Yeah, I'm on threads. Uh, it's currently chewing up my battery. Um, so yeah, I'm there too, but it, I, I look at it, but it doesn't matter which platforms you're on so long as you are using them for a greater than sales potential. Good question. Question nine. Besides emotional and sexual tension, what's another tension I should know? Well, first of all, there's like a lot. There's a ton of tensions. So how about we do dynamic tension? Dynamic tension is the weight or the emphasis we place in between actions in an action exchange. So an action exchange is uh, anything where multiple people engage in a series of things. So an action exchange might be a boxing match where I throw a punch, you throw a punch, I throw a punch. It might be a chess match. I move a piece, you move a piece, I move a piece. It might be a car chase. My car goes here, your car goes there. It might also be two people just working together, not necessarily in competition. But if I'm, you know, prepping the entree for dinner and you're over there chopping the salad, then the tension isn't necessarily between, oh my God, who, which one of us is going to be done first, but it's a tension between our competing sounds or the, the fact that we're working together or the pre-existing drama we brought into the kitchen when we decided we had to stop arguing for two minutes so we could feed our family. Like dynamic tensions point, the purpose of it is to highlight the difference from one action to the next and the difference between the expectation of one action to the next. I throw a punch with the expectation that you're going to get hit. You throw a, a counter punch with the expectation that I'm going to get hit. And where the tension comes in is not only in the fact that one of us is going to get hit, but it's also in the idea that one of us could block it or one of us could move out of the way. And that sets up and creates a further level of consequences because maybe I could move. Now you have to readjust. Now you have to move. Then I get to move. Then I get to punch and you weren't expecting a punch. And all of a sudden we've brought a lot of vitality to things. Dynamic tension allows for movement in a scene. It picks up momentum, whether that's actual characters moving. I step here, you step there, like we're dancing. Or maybe it's more just the idea of like, well, I'm doing this, I'm talking into this microphone and you're taking notes. 
And the tension is you trying to keep up with me speaking. The faster I go, the faster you go, the faster I go, the faster you have to write down these notes versus you having questions and trying to keep them in your head so that when I catch my breath, you can ask your question. Dynamic tension is almost always present in scenes. Maybe it's not a lot of dynamic tension, but it's always there because there's always some lever you can manipulate as a writer. There's always something you can do in a scene. Maybe it's external because you have, you know, your characters are out camping and then snap, a branch breaks and they wonder, oh my God, is it wolves? Or maybe it's just two people in a, in a high school hallway clanging lockers and wondering, oh my God, did you do the homework for next week? Dynamic tension is always there because it's the juxtaposition between the potential of one action and the consequences of another. Dynamic tension. It's rad. On we go. On we go. Are there any questions from anybody in chat? Hello, more people who just showed up. I see you. It's nice to see you. Thanks for being here. Um, my little button, hang on. Yeah, I press the little button and it doesn't give me the pop-up because I don't know why. But it's good to see that you're here. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Questions, anyone? Otherwise, I'm just going to keep drinking minty tea and water as it becomes progressively hotter and hotter in this room. Questions? Nothing? Shall we move on? Were there other let me let me just skim real quick, make sure I got the questions out of my inbox. Blah 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 blah. Let's see. Anything, anything, anything? Yes. It's all good. All right. On we go. On we go. Question 10. How should I market new adult science fiction fantasy? That's N-A-S-F-F. How should I market new adult science fiction fantasy? Well, first of all, this is like the first how should I market question I've had in a while. So thank you for asking it because these answers are usually pretty comprehensive. So buckle up. Here we go. You can market new adult science fiction in one of two primary ways we can market it as new adult more so than science fiction fantasy, or we can market market it as science fiction fantasy ahead of it being new adult. We're not saying to change the story. It's just that we're going to talk about one set of things ahead of another set of things. You don't necessarily want to do both equally because then you're, you're kind of straddling the fence and you're limiting your options by being a little bit too passive being, you know, playing a little bit too safe. So you get to pick and choose. So we're going to cover them both. If you want to market it, let's do science fiction fantasy first. If we want to market it on the strength of its science fiction fantasy, you're probably going to talk about plot or world building ahead of character, or you're going to talk about world building and character ahead of plot. Maybe just character, but it's unlikely that you'll do just one thing. You'll probably grab two parts of the story triangle and build from there. But you're going to aim in traditional science fiction spaces, or maybe you're going to aim in irregular science fiction spaces and realize that everybody else and their mother is talking about world building and plot. So what you're going to come at with is character and plot. 
and the world building becomes secondary. Or maybe you're just going to focus on character. Who knows? But you're going to grab those elements that you think you can most strongly reach an audience with. So you're going to do that through things like, I have the most different ways of expressing points about the character because I know the character really well. So I could talk about the character in this direction and I can make them sound this and make them come across like that. Not just highlighting what it is they're doing in the story, but in a way that makes them approachable and appreciable as fully fleshed out characters. There's somebody down on their luck who's taking, you know, one last shot at, at, at success. There's somebody who has been burnt in the past before and now they're looking to love again. Whatever it might be, whatever dimension or angle you want to give this character, you are positioning that front and center ahead of all the other elements. Maybe your world building is complicated because it's a desert world and the only way to survive is to have Timothy Chalamet's and Zendaya jam things up their nose. Maybe it's an ice planet where everybody has to like survive in little ice caves. I don't know but you find your most key, what are called central elements, the things you could talk about in a number of different ways all the damn time if you were left unattended at a house party. Oh my God, you guys, I made this character, and I'm not going to bore you with the backstory because that's not the point, but I'm going to make this character feel vibrant and fully dimensional to you. Here I go, and then you can rattle off a ton of shit. Or, oh my God, I've got this story, it takes place in this world, and here's the world. Not the lore and backstory of the world. Are you sensing a pattern yet? Not the lore and backstory, but just to make the world feel engaging. I'm only going to tell you this, this, and this about it. Oh my God, my plot, my plot, rather than give you the lore and backstory, I'm going to simplify my plot down to one single question. I'm going to simplify my plot down to one conflict, one sort of challenge. What would you do if you didn't know if every beverage you drank was poison? Find some element of your story somewhere and be able to frame it in a way that makes it sound like, holy shit, that's cool, is the only response someone would want to give you. And then do that for a couple of them. Usually in like do the big ticket stuff first and then pare down thereafter. Like, holy shit, here's Dune and Worms and then move down to, oh, by the way, it's really a fascist story. But we pick and choose our big stuff and work our way down so that we have multiple tools, multiple options, multiple crayons in our coloring, in our, in our box of crayons for our coloring book so that we can come and tell the story in a number of different ways. That's how we market the science fiction fantasy first. If we want to go the other way and we want to market the new adult first, you're going to take some of those same elements, but now you're going to tint them. Now you're going to color them slightly differently. Now we're going to give them a different look and feel and vibe because now you're going to lens it through the idea of new adultness, which means more or less thinking about what it was like to be older teenager into college and immediately in that post-college age where you're, you're supposed to have your life figured out, but no one ever really has their life figured out. And it's everything is sort of known, but still sort of new. 
how can we how can we filter our story that way? How can we take a look at uh, let me think of us. Uh, how can we take Buck Rogers? That way, we're not talking Star Wars or Star Trek or Dune or something. How can we take Buck Rogers and turn Buck Rogers into a new adult? Well, what if Buck Rogers was uh, sort of stuck being Buck Rogers because uh, his parents signed him up for a space travel of the month club, and the next thing you know, he gets stranded somewhere. And all of a sudden, we get this extra layer of tension, not just with aliens and robots and everything else, but we get an extra layer of tension about, like, I'm being part of a thing I didn't sign up for. I'm part of a thing, and I'm in over my head. You look for the most relatable, appreciable, new adult part, whatever it might be, and you put that front and center in your marketing. So that when we bring in the giant, you know, six-armed orangutan monsters or the, you know, chinchilla people who build awesome spaceships, it's still interesting, but it's no longer, we're not living and dying by somebody's appreciation of chinchilla aliens. We are living and dying by the fact that you built a character that on some level a new adult reader can relate to. You pick and choose the primary major lenses you want people to look through to view your story. For me... I've always, now this is a me thing, not necessarily a you thing, but a me thing. I've always had better luck aiming for new adult first and science fiction second, especially when new adult comes into play. Because if you, without it, if you were just doing adult science fiction fantasy, you'd have to get more specific in terms of what it is you're marketing and how you're marketing it. Because comparing, you know, 22 different flavors of slightly different Lord of the Rings quest story gets tired quickly if we're just talking about it in terms of there was a prophecy and then something has to go from point A to point B. We want instead to find different ways of coming at a story in, uh, that encourage and lead our reader, let's say, to say, holy shit, that's amazing. I never thought about it that way before. If you can get there, your marketing will pull itself together pretty consistently. Good question. Oh, boy, howdy, question 11. Big mouthful of water time. What's wrong with using AI to design a starting point? Yeah, that's in quotes. Starting point for my cover so I can commission an artist to finish it. Well, there are a number of things wrong. Here we go. How about, for starters, that AI, whatever you've used, stole someone else's art, their finished art, so that you could turn it into a starting point. So you are already working with stolen, plagiarized material. Somebody else made that thing, and they're not getting credit. And you don't know. It's not original. It's somebody else's. It'd be one thing if you saw the original and were like, hmm, that inspires me. But even then, you wouldn't lift their whole thing in order to be inspired by it. So item number one, you're working with stolen goods. Item number two, it is intellectually lazy as fuck to let AI do anything within like a 30 to 40 kilometer radius of your work. Because if you want to have an artist work your cover, bring them the most amount of free space and, and notes and ideas possible. Not like, hey, I got this started for you, finish it, because no artist wants to come in and get your sloppy seconds. 
But what you want instead is, hey, here's what I need. I, I was kind of thinking, like, could we have, like, a, a spaceship on fire with, like, a skeleton playing, a, like, a guitar as it crashes onto a jungle planet? You know, like, you know that moment in Mad Max, but could we just put that, like, on a spaceship that's crashing? Or um, what if everybody in Lord of the Rings was dressed like a 90s stoner? Who knows? Something. But rather than have AI do the bulk of the heavy lifting and then have your artist finish it, because finish is a very misleading idea, you're you're cheaping you're 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 cheapening the talent and work of your artist by giving them minimal agency and minimal appreciation. Because AI stole in order to make the base of your work. It's lazy. And you're lazy. You're lazy for thinking that AI is going to help because really what, what's your goal? What do you think? Let's, let's spin this around. What do you think you're gaining by using AI? It's saving you time and what else? If your AI is a starting point for your cover, then the, the artist doesn't have to do so much. So were you not expecting to pay them so much? So now in addition to being lazy, we've also figured out that you're cheap. Really? Why? Are you just, I mean, if, you, if you're using AI at all, why not just go the whole route with it and just have the AI do the work? That way you can just fully ignore the artist's print, the artist part of it entirely. Or did you just hire the artist so that you could say, well, I had an artist and, and skirt the line between I'm using AI and an artist. Why? It's, it's not really like a do both kind of thing. It's a, pick one and live with the consequences kind of thing. Either you give enough of a shit that you want to employ an artist so that they can earn a living and not die, you know, have some food, keep a roof over their head, afford their medicine, whatever it is they do to have, you know, a life, or you're far more interested in a plagiarism machine that's looking to expedite the process and suck the joy and life out of art. Which of those things do you want to do? You don't get to do them both. Because that's a chicken shit move. Well, I want, I want the best of both worlds. Well, one of those worlds isn't a best. One of those worlds is the worst. You could argue that both are the worst because the artist still has to hunt and peck and scrape by to get you know the basics of survival because we could instead provide everything for our artists and celebrate them and give everybody you know thousands of dollars just for fucking free. But we decided that can't possibly be how the world works because capitalism or some nonsense... But that's neither here nor there. The point I'm trying to make is using AI at all is bad. It's, it's just bad. Now, there's this comment over here in chat that I use ChatGPT and John. Uh, no, use me. I'm, I'm happy to be employed. I'm very, very good at my job. Uh, ChatGPT is not very good at its job. Uh, it's, it's not like... It's not Stockfish. You know, Stockfish, Stockfish is a chess computer. Stockfish is, is you know, like grandmaster of grandmaster. It's playing at a mega high level. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty damn infallible, at least when it comes to chess. But uh, you wouldn't ask Stockfish to, like, write you a sonnet because its job is to come up with chess moves, whereas to have a sonnet, you have to have a soul and some kind of like humanity. 
ChatGPT sucks. It's not human. It's it doesn't understand things. It just spits back information, often incorrect and error-prone information because it's just looking to serve. It's not a true AI. It's a clumsy file shredder meets a crude data collection like search function in an Excel spreadsheet. Don't don't do it. Just don't do it. Pay your artist, be a real person, give enough of a shit to employ an artist to do a good job. There's no reason to have an AI starting point if you can elaborate, you know, all the the little prompts you type into AI in order to get it to work. You could just give that to the artist and then give them a few more bullet points. And then you could have a real conversation with a real artist to get real art made so that your book can have, gasp, a real cover. There is no reason. There is no reason. There is no reason to use AI anywhere in this creative process. Is that clear? Don't be lazy. Don't be cheap. Don't be unethical. Do better. Be a good person. I understand that that's a scary prospect for some people, but fucking do it anyway. Don't use AI. On we go. Question 12. What can I do if I'm intimidated by the craft of writing? Okay, that's fair. The craft of writing, when we talk about it like that, can be intimidating. There's all this, all these terms, all this jargon, all these stories and books you're supposed to, I'm making air quotes, supposed to have read and understood. You have to know these things like as if, as if, as if everyone is just um, like hyper aware all the time about Brecht and Chekhov and the value of Dostoevsky. And everybody knows like three different kinds of like sentence structures or something. And if all that stuff with all those things really freak you the hell out because it just seems like extra school and hyper-perfectionism and it just makes you feel stupid, I want you to know, plain and simple, that you don't need to know fuck all any of it. There's a baseline you need to know uh, in your respective language and in your respective grammar for your respective language. Now, I'm doing this in English, so a lot of these rules are English Anglo-centric, and they don't apply to things like Slavic languages because the construction is different, or they, they don't have anything to do with a lot of indigenous languages because the construction and the rules are different. We're not really breaking out into, like, symbolized writing. We're not really moving into hieroglyphs or, or, or more modern, you know, kanji or anything. We're, we're just English. There's a baseline set of rules. When do I use a period? When do I, when do I use what kind of punctuation? If you can learn that and you can learn that, you know, quotes go around words that characters say out loud and People, most of the time, when you're writing lines that go in quotes, they go on their own lines. You hit enter. We try not to make our sentences too super long, even if they're accurate. We try not to um, have unclear pronouns, so it might help to know what a pronoun is. But beyond that, it, it doesn't really fucking matter. It really doesn't. You don't gain anything by 
remembering the work of like Brecht at any particular point, or, you know, if you've never read Emily Dickinson, no one gives a shit. You know, if you, if you never, you know, got real deep with the classics, like if you're not up on Sophocles, nobody's coming to take your car away. It just, it just doesn't matter. The craft of writing is there for a set of people to really give a shit about, but you can not know the craft and still produce good writing because you are not the craft. The craft is just a set of stuff, a, a set of knowledge, a set of skills. And you can train those skills and you can gain knowledge of the stuff. And you might kind of do it without knowing that there are terms for it. Like, hey, John, what is it called when two people do this? Oh, that's a such and such and so and so. You might not know there's a term for it, but you might have written a scene where that happens. You might have written a thematic flashback and had no idea it was a thematic flashback. You just needed to have this scene where a person remembered their childhood. It's okay if the terminology and the complexity and the history of, of writing as a thing and the, the, the heroes of the past and the ghosts of the past all seem like really big deals. You don't have to interface with really any of that stuff. It might be interesting. You might find some books written by some people that are interesting. You might enjoy reading, you know, Moby Dick or Antigone or something. You might like the Iliad. You might like, you know, Dante's Inferno. Who knows? You might also hate War and Peace. You might also hate Dracula. You might dislike, uh, I don't know, Devil in a Blue Dress. Loads of different things. You don't have to like them all. You don't have to know them all. If you're intimidated, pick and choose the things you like and stick with them. Now, yes, yes, if you pick and choose like only two things and you only and you never make an attempt to really push past that, yes, eventually you will run into some frustration. You will run into some tired stuff because no one piece of media can teach you everything. They have to work sort of in concert with other stuff. But if you're really, really intimidated by it, understand that a lot of the craft of writing can get resolved and managed by doing the act of writing. And a lot of the terminology and a lot of the complexity and a lot of the big academic bullshittery stuff, you don't need it. You don't need it. I'm overeducated. I'm way overeducated. I don't use half the shit that's in my brain. It's annoying. I wish I could have dedicated it to things like compassion and empathy probably 20 years earlier than I learned it. I would have paid more attention in other classes. I would have, you know, met more people and done more things. The craft of writing is, I think, overly complex, overly privileged, and mostly unnecessary. So if it intimidates you, hey, you're not alone. But please don't feel like you have to go master it before you start writing. Just go start writing. It's going to be fine. It really is going to turn out just fine. Don't worry about the craft. Shall we do one last question for the day? Question 13. Why does my story have to, air quotes, say something? I saved this question for last. Originally, question 12 was going to be our last, but I like this question, and I want to end with it. Yes, your story has to say something. I don't care what story it is. I don't care if we're seeing Dick and Jane run. I don't care if we're hopping on pop. 
I don't care if we are stabbing at thee from hell's heart. I don't care if we are plunging into the heart of darkness. Doesn't matter to me. Your story, even if it's the story of a, of a young woman returning to her home down and falling in love with the bad boy, or the story of two unassuming people from the wrong side, of, you know, from all other sides of the tracks, meeting each other and going on a noble quest. I don't care what it is. It has to say something. You have an obligation. We are not just painting a chalk outline on the sidewalk waiting for the rain to wash it away. We are creating some art. We are waiting for your story to reach us and impress upon us your experience in the world. You have, you have a view on the world that no one else does. You have feelings that are similar to other people's feelings, but no one feels them the way you do. Not the same intensity, not the same flavor, not the same vector, nothing. Totally different world, totally different person. You have something no one else has. And that something, that view, that, I, that set of ideas, that belief system, that experience is to be shared. Because when we all share that experience and we all communicate it and we all produce it so that other people can, can value it, not evaluate it, but value it and appreciate it, we grow closer together and collectively we are capable of great things because we give a shit about each other. Like, we went to the moon. I don't care if you want to wave flags and point it like whose dick is bigger. We went to the moon. We painted on building ceilings we sculpted stone we we crafted temples and glorious palaces to albeit destructive monarchs but we we've made the world and shaped the world for reasons because we gave a shit and the more centralized we become around economy and income the more focused we get on little digital numbers and little lines going up the less we focus on what are you really saying? Because it turns out that when you focus more on views and followers and dollars and clicks and links and backlinks and traffic, you lose sight of the fact that there's a person on the other end and they came to your book, not because they had $4.99 burning a hole in their pocket. They could have bought a snack with that but because they were looking for an experience. They were looking for something to move them, to stir them, to satisfy them, to please them, to arouse them, to interest them, to make them imagine something, to give them something to think about. You have that potential. You have that ability to do that. This is why we write in the first place. Way back at the beginning of this about 90-minute thing so far, we talked about what's your why, why do you do this? You do this because it is your life, your view on things, your word choice, your knowledge, your experience that can reach out wherever you are to wherever they are, build a bridge between you and somebody you don't know and improve their day. You can make them for a few minutes better. You can fill them with joy. You can fill them with happiness. You can arouse them. You can satisfy them. You can educate them. You can inform them. You can provoke thinking. You can do that. You have that ability. But your story needs to say something in order to do that. You need to have a theme. 
You need to have multiple themes. Your story needs to be more than just the story of, well, it's two rangers in a night who walk across the forest. Yeah, that's fine. That's okay. But what are, you, what are we saying beyond that? Is it a story of struggle, a story of hardship? Not just, oh, well, it's really hard because they fight a dragon. What are you saying about your life? What are you saying about how you feel? What are you saying of your experience in the world that's coming across through the medium and the conduit of your writing? I'm writing a romance novel. Okay, what are you going to say about love? I'm writing a, a Western. Okay, what are you going to say about, I don't know, loss or vengeance? I'm writing a cookbook. Great. Why? Because you, you've, uh, nonfiction-wise, you've picked one of the hardest things in the world to sell. Even though everybody eats, cookbooks are notoriously difficult to break into market because um, you need strong-as-hell food photography and rock-solid recipes. So wh why? Because there were way easier ways to spend your time. Is it because you really want people to understand that it's totally okay to eat those weird-colored bits of meat? Because you know, food? Or is it because when you were a little kid, you remember growing up in a household that always smelled like food and you equated that smell with love and hope and you want to give that feeling to somebody else. So you sit down and you make a book that empowers that, enables that, ennobles them. Your story has to say something. The people who I talk to who are so resistant to the idea of saying something they're not bad people. They're not. They're not fascists. They're not Nazis. They're not, you know, monsters. They're just people who haven't yet become intellectually or emotionally curious. And they need to be. You need to be. Because there's this whole giant world out there that gives way more of a shit about what your book says rather than what your book is. Because there's a whole big giant world out there that's going to read your book and they're going to feel something. Because they're not going to feel something because, ah, it's a story about two hunky firefighters. No, that's not going to do anything beyond like possible titillation. They're reading your book and they're looking for your book because they want to feel something. They had a bad day. They want to sit down on the couch and read a book. It's raining. They miss somebody. They want to sit there and stare out the window and feel better. You can do that. That's why your story has to say something. It's not to be pretentious. It's not to show off how smart you are. It's because it is in the act of saying something, whatever that something is, you're giving a shit about mankind, humanity. You're caring. You're being empathetic. You're being compassionate. You're being creative. That was the whole point, right? Like we talked about earlier, if you don't tell this story, your brain's going to leak out your ears. You think that's because everybody's desperate for $2.99 per click? Or do you think it's perhaps because people need to be moved? People need to care. And you have the ability to, to, to engender that, to develop that, to fire that up. You can do that. You should do that. It's important. Now, here's a question over here chat why wouldn't you want to say something like i get forgetting to do it but why not want to do it do they see it as upping the difficulty yes 
I think I think I think there are two reasons why they don't want to do it. One, uh, they automatically assume that in order to say something, it's going to be really, really tough. Like it, it becomes this extra thing they have to learn how to do, or it's very hard to do it. It's very complicated, and it's going to require like adding more shit into their story or building more things into it. And like they don't they don't think about their story that way. They don't want to change their story to bolt on these these pieces that they think they do. They think it's very hard to do, so they don't want to do it. And the other thing is, they they don't stop and think about the expectation they have. When, when people talk about stories saying something, they have an assumption. They think that, oh, well, the stories that say something are always, like, I didn't like reading them in school. I found them boring. I found them difficult. I found them, you know, bad. And I don't want my story to be bad. Uh, I, you know, I read the Brothers Karamazov in high school. And I liked it. I liked it a lot. But a lot of my classmates thought it was one of the worst things ever committed to paper because it's like 2,000 pages long. The names are really tough. And it doesn't have a whole lot of like ninjas or bears or sex scenes in it. So it is real hard to get through when you're in high school. And we were told over and over the story says something. The story has a lot of moving parts and it's a, it's a big, giant thing. Um. And people just assume that if you're trying to say something, just like that book was, that you have to write a boring book they're not going to like, and nobody wants their stuff to be boring. What they don't realize is that in the act of saying something, you don't have to, like, staple extra shit into your story. You just need to clear, you know, clarify and clear up what it is you're saying in your story. And maybe, maybe add a, a little thing here or there. Maybe tie together this more accurately. Or maybe rewrite that scene where the character has the breakdown so that it can do more than just be, oh, that's the scene where Janet's mad. There should be, I think in everybody, there's a want to affect people. I'm a writer. I want to make people laugh. I want to make people happy. I want to, like, yes, we, t- we frame it in terms of, like, I want to sell a book. Yay. But I think internally beyond capitalism, there's this point of, like, I want to reach somebody and it is in the saying something that they do the reaching, but because we don't spend enough time talking about how or what, and we don't work with enough people individually to turn around and go like, Hey, here's how you're going to reach them. Like if you're, you're writing a gay romance novel. Um, if you're aiming your gay romance novel at people who are just newly out of the closet, let's say, which is a very popular little subgenre of gay romance, then your book can have a remarkable reassuring effect on uh, people who are newly out of the closet that it's okay to be out of the closet. Because here are people just like me, just like you, who have lives and are, you know, it's a little bit fantastic because we're reading a story where, you know, somebody's not wearing a mesh t-shirt on club night, but here's a story and I can relate to it. That's important. That's a thing. Most people think it's more complicated than that, or they think that it's automatically bad. That's why they don't want to do it, which is a real shame because it doesn't need to be. It can be pretty simple. I mean, you can make it more difficult, but you can make anything more difficult. We could, you know, add in a whole other subplot. We could, you know, bring in more people. We could add more, spin more plates over the course of our story. You often don't need to. You just need to be clearer. You need to be more decisive in your language.
And it might take a little bit longer because you might have to do like an extra rewrite here or there or like really choose to let something go that you're attached to or, or put something in and you're a little uncertain about it because you've never really talked about it because it requires vulnerability. If you're, if you're looking to reach the vulnerable other, you must first find your vulnerable self. There's your therapy quote for the day. My therapist is going to be so pleased even though I know they don't listen to my chats because I swear too much. But the, the point is you have to find you so that you can reach them, which means you need to know what it is you want to say and then figure out how we can line up the story to be congruent with that. And that's hard for a lot of people because it's scary because you might not have the first clue what it is you want to say because you don't sit and confront yourself. You don't sit and do the moment. Thinking about themes gets you close to saying something. Yes, themes are the first step. What is a theme? What theme will this story have? And then you take the next step, which is, okay, I have selected my theme. Now I'm going to explore my thoughts around this theme. I want to write found family. Super popular theme. So that means I need to stop and look at what I know the definition of found family to be. And then I need to look at my experience with the ideas and concept of found family and go from there. And, and that's the hard part because you can define it. You just go look it up right now. Google it real quick. One, two, three, get a definition. But to think about how it relates to your life, to think about what your found family means to you might also mean sitting and having a moment where you think about your biological family. And all of a sudden you realize like that's dysfunctional. I'm getting away from that. I'm uncomfortable thinking about that. And I much prefer this family I have now. And the potential for that discomfort, oh my God, that means I might have to start thinking about that shit is enough to scare people off. So they don't do it. But your story has to say something. We, we, how do I say this? In traditional publishing, the, the drum gets beat a lot for you got to have a theme and it is a box to tick. Do you have a theme? Yes, no. If yes, okay. If no, rejection. And, and it's, it sort of stays at that surface level because, well, traditional publishing are dinosaurs. And digging any deeper means the animals have to evolve. And they're not interested in doing that. Also, it would require more careful reading on the reader's part, uh, the, like the, the publishing reader part, and they're, they're not fucking doing that. So what they do instead is just make a blanket statement. The rest of us, you know, mammal kind, uh, we dig deeper because we're looking for something more than just, does this tick a box? Which means you have to do more than just tick a box when you're writing it. It's hard. And a lot of people aren't interested in doing the tough stuff. A lot of people want to do the middle of the road stuff at worst and rest and recover and take it easy from there because they also don't want to examine why their life is hard in the first place. The answer is capitalism. But um, they don't want to push themselves in those deeper emotional waters out of fear. That's why it doesn't happen. Amazing stuff. 
one of my favorite things to talk about, especially now with clients, where we can stop and be like, okay, what's your story about? And 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 they'll tell me the plot, and I'm like, no, what's it about? Like, what are you what are you saying? And sometimes they go like, oh, this is what I'm trying to say. And other times they ask, well, what do you mean? And then we get into this conversation. And then other times entirely where they're like, I'm just going to repeat the plot because it sounds like you didn't hear me. And that's not what I mean. I mean, like you, even, even the people writing the most like epic fantasy, epic fantasy, epic fantasy trope factory, say something, say something, push yourself just a little bit to connect with somebody else through your work not because of the elves and the dwarves and the chainmail and the dragons. Not just because it's a, you know, a slightly sexy, passionate story. Not because it's just, oh, there are ghosts in my murder mystery. But because you are a human being crafting art to reach other human beings. Do that. It's worth the extra time and effort. Say something. On we go. Are there... Any questions from anybody in chat? Else we will get out of here. And I say get out of here, but really all I'm going to do is upload this to YouTube in a minute. I am displeased that Twitch changed the terms of service so that I, I can't just do both with one button click like we used to. That was pretty great, but it'll be nice to upload. So there's that. Questions, anybody? Otherwise, we'll get out of here. Shall we head to the outro? Let us head to the outro. Well, we're back. We're back. We're getting back. We're getting our feet underneath us. We're continuing to move. We're building forward. Everything's going great. Thank you so much for checking this out. Thank you for your questions and chat. Thanks for being here. Thanks for asking stuff. It was wonderful. It's good to be back. Uh, we're back on our regular schedule, back on our bullshit, as the kids say. The next time I will be right here in your eyes and in your ears will be probably August the 8th. Uh, right around one o'clock. I might just do the next one on YouTube just for the hell of it, but uh, stay tuned for things. Um, thanks so much for being here. It really means the world. If you enjoyed this, if this is what you were looking for, uh, please remember that you can support each and every single thing I do by going to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. $2 a month. $2 a month gets you so, so much on a weekly basis. Things like this, things more than this, um, oodles and oodles more please two bucks a month I think it's worth your time uh, I will see you next week right back here same YouTube slash Twitch channel uh, for more details for more help for more everything go over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com all power to all people thanks to the comrades for sticking with me um, it feels good to be back and I'm really pleased but side personal note um, over the next one, two, three, four days. I'm driving 2,100 miles. So uh, spare a thought. Send good vibes. 
It's a lot of driving. But I'll be back here bright and early, eager and chipper, to stream more questions, to give you more answers, to do more things, and help you write better. I'll talk to you soon. See you.